0: You are listening to the Thoughts From a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I'd love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month and a monthly advanced read and pre-publication author chat. For those on Facebook, I host a special Patreon Facebook group where we all chat books. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with Mary Laura Philpot about her new memoir, Bomb Shelter. Love, Time, and Other Explosives. Her writing has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and other publications. Additionally, Mary Laura is a former bookseller and was an Emmy winning co host of A Word on Words, the literary interview program on Nashville Public Television. She lives in Nashville, Tennessee with her family. I selected Bomb Shelter as one of my April Buzz reads. I just loved it. I really hope you enjoy our conversation. And now for a quick break. For the last year, I have been focusing more on my health and my eating habits. In connection with that, I have started drinking AG1 in the morning. I first gave AG1 a try because I needed more energy. Since drinking AG1 daily, I have definitely felt more energized. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre- and probiotics, and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. I know with AG1, I'm giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process, so you know it is safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrient density. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and I am really happy to have them sponsoring my show. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash thoughtsfromapage. That's drink, A-G, the number one, dot com slash thoughtsfromapage. Check it out. Welcome, Mary Laura. How are you today?
1: I'm great, Cindy. Thank you for having me. It's fun to talk to you again.
0: It is so fun to talk to you again. Also, I just always love the story of how I stumbled across your first book when I was working at Murder by the Book, yes. and the galleys would come in, and I see this cover that I think is just fabulous, and I pick it up, and I'm like, I miss you when I blink, Mary Laura Philpot. So I take it home, I read it, and I'm like, I am in love with this book. I reached out <laughs> on Instagram, and we scheduled it, and you came, and were part of our literary salon here in Houston, which was so much fun. It was
1: a blast. We had so much fun and we st- we ended up, remember we stayed at your friend's house all day long. Catherine Center came. That's right. And we did a conversation and Houston got a tropical storm that day and we couldn't leave because we were flooded in. So your sweet friend hosted us for hours beyond what she probably meant to do.
0: Yes, Krista made us
1: waffles and
0: bacon. And several people who tried to leave came back, so there ended up being like eight or nine of us. So that was very fun. But thankfully, you did get out, which was good, because I'm sure you were like, I've got to get back home. But (laughs) it was a wonderful time, and so I'm really thrilled to pieces to be talking with you now for your second book, which I loved even more, if that's possible, than I Miss You When I Blink.
1: Good. Yeah. I'm glad.
0: So let's talk a little bit about Bomb Shelter. Before we dive (laughs) into my questions, will you just give me a quick synopsis for those that won't have read it yet?
1: Yes. I'll start out quick. And if I start rambling, you just stop me because I'm still kind of trying to figure out what is the elevator pitch for this book. (laughs) It is similar to I Miss You When I Blink. It's nonfiction. It's about my life. It's a memoir. It's a memoir built out of essays, but it's definitely, I, I would say firmly in the memoir category. I wouldn't call this an essay collection because it's really about a more cohesive span of time and a more cohesive theme. And in terms of themes, this one's about coming face to face with... The limits of the human body and mind, the tragic limits, the hilarious limits. And it all takes place within two years. So it's a two year aftermath of a crisis in my family that changed the way I see everything forever. And one of the questions that I'm grappling with in bomb shelter is why can't loving someone be enough to keep them safe? So as you can imagine, it runs the whole emotional gamut. It's, you know, it's a laughing book, it's a crying book. I am being told by very early readers that it is also a feel-good book, so I think that's that's a good thing. But it begins with a before and after moment in my life. I go to bed one night, and when I wake up the next morning, nothing will ever be the same again. And that's because what woke me up at 4 a.m. was the sound of my son's body hitting the bathroom floor again and again as he had a seizure. And what unfolds from there is what sets the you know time clock ticking for this book. Everything that I write about think about, look forward to, think back upon in my memory is all now colored by what happened to my son. Not only in a literal way, because we were you know, spending much of that time trying to figure out what happened and why and how do we keep it from happening again, but also that was one of those moments almost like being present for a birth or a death where life gives you a glimpse of that very thin line between alive and and not alive. And once you've seen that line, it's hard to think about anything the same way. Life and time and love and, you know, that explains the the subtitle of this book, Love, Time, and Other Explosives. So, I just rambled. That was the world's longest run-on sentence, but that's what the book is about.
0: No, I thought it was perfect. And I thought a lot about you as I was reading it because it's one of those defining moments for you. You will always think about before he had his diagnosis or his seizure mm-hmm. and then his diagnosis. And after. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, you kind of will break those out. And I think there are times, and you even mentioned this in one of your essays, where it's almost the blink of an eye, or, you know, you start dinner thinking one thing and you end dinner thinking another. You go to bed one night thinking this is your life. You wake up the next morning and you're in a completely different universe almost.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I used a line from Joan Didion's memoir about the year following her husband's death, um, the year of magical thinking. She has a line in there that says, you sit down to dinner and life as you know, it ends. And in this book, and you know, this is not too much of a spoiler, I don't think, but um, you know, my son's life does not end within this book, but life as we knew it did, you know, we went to bed one night and life as we knew it was over. Life would always be different afterward. It's not a book about him. It's not a book about his medical journey. It's not one of those kind of memoirs. It's a memoir about me, uh, you know, the woman character, the mom, and how I grapple with things like growing up and growing older and letting go and being a warrior, but also an optimist at heart. And all these stories came bubbling up in my mind, true stories, things that had happened in my life that suddenly I was seeing differently because of that thing that happened. So it's, you know, I always want to sort of make the distinction. This is not really a medical memoir, but that experience is what served as a springboard for everything that came after and everything that I thought about afterward.
0: Exactly. And everything you dealt with. Like when you all are at the ER and the doctor's like, Here is his medicine. Everything should be controlled okay. Go to the doctor. And you you're going, Wait a minute, you know, and I know I've been in those experiences with my kids. I'm like, wait, wait, I have a lot of questions. Like, this is not enough. You can't send me home with just this information. Right. And so I think definitely it is your your story and how you're grappling these with these things and how as a mother, you know, you worry, okay, his life has really changed. What does this do for him? And how how you can control your sadness cuz for me that's sometimes what happens like i have to i have to kind of control myself and be like okay i can't cry in front of one of my children you know if i'm worried about them or i need to right. put on a good face i need to help them and you have to almost mask your own emotions to be able to help them
1: yeah yeah that's such a that's one of those sort of unsung jobs of motherhood yes. <laughs> that no one tells you about the part where you have to like keep yourself under control while you're with the children.
0: But then it comes out other ways, which you write about, you know, and I think that's so interesting. The other thing that really struck me, and I think this is especially now the world we're living in with COVID and people so frustrated all the time, is just the random, ugly comments people sometimes make. And like you were talking about, you'd shown up at an event And you were really happy with your outfit. And then somebody made some kind of sort of snide comment, like nobody's going to take you seriously in that. (laughs) And you're thinking, was that necessary? I just, those are the things. And I laugh because then you, you talk about it several more times that you have all these things you would say back later, all these responses. And that's what happens to me. I lay awake at night thinking of my clever responses I could have made when those things happened to me.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a great example of a story um, within this book that on the surface is completely unrelated to what I say I'm going to start out telling you, but it comes back to it. You know, I start that, that little story with going, okay. So I was at this party. It was a professional party and a person who I kind of knew, but not really like I knew them well enough to be at the same professional parties, but that's it. And I've never seen them since came over and was like, Oh, look at you. Aren't you cute? And I did think I looked cute and I was like, Oh, thanks. And before they walked away, they said, of course, no one's ever going to take you seriously if you dress like that. Because, I, I mean, I wasn't in like a big bird costume. I just <laughs> had on, I had like a cute, it was a fun skirt. It was like multicolored sort of, it was completely artificial, like cross between feathers and fur. It was just a fun little skirt. But kind of where I take that in my mind is not is not just, well, that was hurtful and didn't need to be. But, you know, first of all, imagine being someone who the thing they value most is being taken seriously. Like. It, What a burden that would be to walk through life going, oh, I hope everyone's taking me seriously. I cannot be. I don't have time to worry about who's taking me seriously. And if people are going to not take me seriously because of my outfit, I I really don't have time for that. But where that story ends up is, I love this little skirt. It's crazy. It looks like fake fur, but it puts me in a good mood. And here are some other things that put me in a good mood. And I name some just little tiny things in the world that are meaningless. And the reason I need to embrace those little feel-good things is because there is a a little engine in my mind churning constantly, full of dread about all the awful things that could happen to everyone I love and how scary the world is. So I need to take note of and embrace any little thing that also shows me the world is beautiful or comfortable or kind. And so that's why I, I love little sparkly, fun things. And- It all comes back to wanting to feel like the world is a place that's okay and safe to let the people I love walk around in, which is kind of a, somebody who read an early copy of this book was like, I did not think that story was going (laughs) to land there, but you landed it there. So it all, you know, it's all coming back to that same sort of anxious optimism personality that I have.
0: Absolutely. And definitely the story went in a different direction, but I thought it was really interesting. And it, it just kind of continued to remind me as I read the book really focus on the happy things. Don't get bogged down by somebody cutting in front of you when you're driving on the highway, or don't worry about these people that feel like they have to say things to make themselves feel better. Because I mean, really, in the end, not only does this person worry about being taken seriously, apparently, but they feel the need to say something ugly to you to make themselves feel better. I certainly don't have time for that.
1: No. I mean, the the world is, there's enough darkness. Like, why would we make more right. <laughs> by I being mean to each other? We just... We don't need that. But on the flip side, I will say there, there's another story in the book where I'm. T- it's a story about taking my son on his first college tour, and while we're on that college tour, the admissions person tells kind of a cautionary tale. He was like, "So one time we were we had a tour group here, and it was so obvious that the." This girl, the student did not want to be on this tour. The whole thing was her parents' idea. And the way we knew that her parents had just dragged her on this tour was because our tour guide found the mother and the daughter in a screaming match on the quad. And everybody, you know, everyone who was on this tour with us was like, oh, my gosh, can you imagine yelling at your child on a college tour? And in this story, in the book, I kind of go off on an imaginary tangent where I do imagine, okay, well, what might have been going on? in their lives that day? What was going on for that mother? What was going on for that daughter? Why might she have screamed at her kid in that instance? And now that one instance that was witnessed by a tour guide has become this cautionary tale that that people tell. So, you know, maybe we could cut each other a little slack. I try to have empathy. I kind of go in cycles with it.
0: <laughs> I do the same thing. I really thought a lot about that story. And you know what it made me think about the college story? Was all these moms at the park when they have like two-year-olds and then somebody says, well, I saw this woman at the park and she was on her phone the whole time. And then you're thinking, oh my gosh, that this is probably the 15 minutes that she has peace. She can see her kid on the slide. If she's looking at her phone for five minutes, give her a break you know? And so I sometimes think all the public shaming and people calling out things when they're only seeing one tiny sliver of what's going on. You don't know. Yes. And so you're like, you know what? There are so many more things probably that are elements of any of these stories. And so, yes. And and then you ended it with, I hope she never learns that they were talking about her and I hope she never reads this. And I thought, oh, I agree because it could be her one time in life that something just snapped and everything was off. And I mean, we right. all have those days.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> all the time. Yes. I mean, it's such a good example. The moms at the park. I remember those days. And it, like, maybe the mom on the phone at her park is actually sitting there just scrolling through Instagram. And maybe that's bad or maybe that's good. But maybe she also got like an emergency call from work and she's trying to deal with it. We don't know.
0: She very well could be the best mother ever, or she could be the worst mother. Who knows? But just to look at your phone for two minutes while your kid is right there on the slide, I just sort of think, oh, I don't know, people. There's lots of sides to lots of these right. things, and maybe we need to all not worry about what other people are doing and just focus on ourselves. Right,
1: right. That's a. I love that you brought that up. That's a kind of a recurring little micro theme, if you will, throughout Bomb Shelter is taking a moment to look at how something might look from the outside. Like even at the beginning of the book, when I there's a chapter where I describe finding my son, and it's. It's a very tense chapter, but I am describing how he is, at that time, still a child. He's a teenager, but he is man size. And I say, if you saw him walking down the street from afar, you would say, there goes a man. And I sort of sprinkled throughout the book are all these little moments where I I say, and if you were looking at this from afar, it would look like this, but here's what was really happening. And that's kind of what we're all doing. We're all inside our own experience and then seeing everyone else's experiences from the outside.
0: And that really resonated with me. And just, as I think I said earlier, it was just a good reminder, like practice kindness, try not to judge, you know, and just kind of realize who knows what anybody else is dealing with. And that the chapter you end with, I think, really addresses that as well, or the essay that you end with.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, I'm trying not to give too much away about where, kind of where it ends. But I do tell a story within that about a friend of mine who, something tragic happened and I didn't see it coming at all. And I didn't see it coming because from what I could see from the distance between my life and her life, I thought everything was fine and it wasn't. And I, and I sort of struggled with regret over not knowing better what was going on with her. But that's, you know, again, that's kind of where we all are. We've all got sort of this natural distance built in between our experiences and everyone else's.
0: And I really liked that you pointed that out and kind of hammered it home throughout the essays in a good way. I just felt like that was such a good reminder, such a good lesson, and just something to kind of keep in the forefront of my mind. Awesome. I also loved that you mentioned Les Mis, because that is my all-time favorite (laughs) musical. I've literally seen it like 16 times. I'm not exaggerating. And I could sing every song by heart. And so when you were singing it, I was singing it right there because I was like, oh, I love this. And I can't believe it's actually in her book. So I have to tell you, thank you.
1: I tell you what, if you want to play a really low stakes drinking game with this book, take a drink every time you find a musical theater reference because there are several and some of them are obvious and some of them are not. But I am not, I did not grow up a big, you know, musical theater aficionado, but I have raised one accidentally. Somehow I have this daughter who is, I don't know where she came from, but she's amazing. She's an actor and she loves musical theater. And so I've gone to so many musical theater shows since having her and i have found that lyrics and characters and musicals now like just populate my thoughts in a way that they never did before i've never been an actor
0: but i absolutely love musical theater and i have since i was young so it was just so much fun to see all the musical references
1: <laughs> that's a little, little something for our theater friends
0: exactly thank you well how did your family respond to your writing about them
1: you know they You know, the short answer is very graciously, and they are wonderful about it. I think what they understood early on being closest to me is that this is not a book about them. This is a book very much in which I'm telling a story about me in order to tell a story about being human. But to find my way into this story about me, I had to use a few scenes that happened in our life together as a family. And that's where they had to, you know, give me permission and and read what I was writing and say, yes, that is okay that you share that. And that was extremely important to me throughout this book. Prior to now, I didn't write much about my family. Even in I Miss You When I Blink, there there's family stuff in there, but it's at quite a distance. This is the most personal thing I've ever written in terms of including my family life. So I was very, very wary about protecting privacy and also just protecting the fact that other people's lives are not my story to tell. My life is my story to tell. So my my barometer or kind of my the little device I used to make sure I was always within those boundaries was periodically when writing a scene or a chapter or whatever, I would do the once upon a time test, which is where I look at the scene I'm writing. And if I can say, once upon a time, a woman was in this situation and she thought this and then this happened and then that happened and she thought something different, I'm good. If I find myself writing and I, and it has turned into once upon a time, this thing happened to a boy and the boy felt like this and then the boy felt like this. Whoa, I got to pull back. That's not my story to tell. And they understood that because they understood, you know, they saw me writing this book and they heard me talking about it at the dinner table. So being the people closest to me while I was writing it, I, I do think they had that, that good perspective.
0: And I do think that's always the tricky part about writing a memoir is that you are writing your own story but unless you live all by yourself in the middle of nowhere other people are going to be in that story right right
1: and and most of the time almost all of the time my rule is if if in doubt in the places where my story overlaps with someone else leave out you know leave out the other person leave out the other things that happened to them or just leave out that part of my story because maybe it's just too much too much braided in with someone else's story but i really couldn't do I could not do bomb shelter without starting it with my son's seizure because it did change the way I thought about everything. And it provided the ticking clock and the sense of urgency to the next two years because he was in 10th grade when that happened. And so suddenly I was thinking, well, in two years, if he graduates from high school, he will leave home and I need to know that he's safe out there when I can't protect him and be with him. So I've got two years to make sure he's okay. And- that's what kind of gave the book its boundary. You know, everything that happens, everything I think about and everything that I'm doing takes place within those those two years. So they were, they were wonderfully understanding my son and my daughter and my husband about, and my parents who are in this book, about allowing me to tell some pieces of our story together.
0: That's wonderful. And you've clearly thought through it and run it by them. And I think as long as you do all of that, then it's wonderful to have that story out there.
1: Yeah. And I'm not, you know, there's such a different thing between like this is this is a very different thing from like if you and I were out to lunch or we were at a party and we were just catching up and you were like, "Hey, how's the family?" I might tell you some cute stories about my kids. I might be like, "Oh, listen to this funny thing my daughter said the other day. Here's this cute thing my son said." That's not what I'm doing here at all. Like this is not me just sharing stories about my family because they're entertaining. This is me telling a story about letting go and being a parent and being an adult and being a mortal human being. And, you know, there's some overlap with other people's stories and they've given me permission to do that, which is wonderful.
0: Absolutely. And just that balancing, enjoying life, but also dealing with stress and worrying about mortality and just what it's like to be a woman at your age in this time and place.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> this is in some ways like this is one of those books where I feel like on different levels, it, it can be something different to different types of readers. But if you are a middle-aged woman in America, there is probably something in here that is relatable for you.
0: Absolutely. The book is divided into parts. Tell me about that.
1: Yes, that was actually an idea that I came up with in discussion with my agent. So somehow, this is amazing because I didn't set out to do this, but this book has the same number of chapters, either the exact same or off by one, as I miss you when I blink. And it's not like I sat down and said, you know, a good book should have 32 chapters it just came out that way. But in talking about it with my agent, I said, I feel like there are moments in this book where we shift gears, where it's been like, we've kind of been on this thematic territory for a while, and then there's a gear shift, and the mood changes for a few chapters. And then something comes along, and we shift into even a different gear. And she was like, well, why don't you indicate that? You know, you could... You could put a little blank page between those parts or whatever, and I decided, well, that's we'll just say part one, part two, part three, part four, and I like that. I liked I like giving some sort of little indicator to the reader that just you know just says, hey, we're taking a we're taking a turn here. Come along, a shift is coming. Yes, exactly.
0: Well, I liked that, and then it it was interesting to kind of determine not really the theme, but what the overarching idea was for each part.
1: Yeah, that's you know. I know people read differently and some people read in a hurry and some people read slowly, but there's always part of me that feels like for the other English majors out there, I like to include some things that if you wanted to read very slowly and take notes and, you know, draw comparisons between chapters or, or like you just said, think about what is the theme of this section. You could. And
0: I liked that because I'm that type of person. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. So recently on Instagram, you've posted about recording the audiobook. And I have gotten such a kick out of your posts and learning a little bit more
1: about what that's like. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yes. I'm so I feel so lucky that that I'm allowed to record the audiobook myself because, you know, the way this often works is you get an email. In fact, this is what happened with I Miss You When I Blink. I got an email from my editor one day that said, please listen to the following five it was like three or five audio samples from Actors who read audiobooks and choose the one you want to read your audiobook. And I said, These people all sound lovely, but if you would like me to, and if you think I can do it, I would be happy to do this myself. I always love hearing a memoir in the person's actual voice when possible. And at the time, I don't anymore, but I used to work for Nashville Public Television. I had a show on. So there was ample, you know, sample material for them to listen to and hear that I could actually do this. And so they let me do it with I miss you when I blink and it went well and people liked it. And so when it came to bomb shelter, that was just the automatic decision. You're going to record it again. So it's been really, it's been really fun. Nashville, I think it's probably a unique, kind of a unique situation to be recording an audiobook in Nashville because, you know, if I lived in, I don't know, Cleveland or somewhere, the question of, can we find a good sound studio might be kind of tricky, but you know, <laughs> Nashville, you can't swing a cat and not hit a sound studio. They're everywhere. So I am in a studio, we're just, we're finishing up right now. I'm in a sound studio called Sound Emporium and it is, the halls are lined with photos and records by the people who have recorded there. And it is insane. And I am like, I was joking the other day to a friend because they're, you know, it's divided into sub studios and I'm down in Studio G, but down at the far end of the hall in Studio B, there's an actual rock star in there right now recording. And I was joking with a friend, like, I'm probably the only person in the building walking around wearing Eileen Fisher and carrying my hot tea. And everyone else is just these rock stars. But that's Nashville. That's what happens if you need to record something in Music City. That has to be so much fun. It's just wild. It's sort of surreal. Like, there there have been moments where I'm just like, I can't believe this is happening.
0: <laughs> and I can't remember, there were a couple of funny things that you commented on in that post. I should have looked back on it before we were talking but something about sound or I can't remember.
1: Yes. So Nashville is booming. I mean, booming. The number of people, new people moving to Nashville every day. I don't know the number, but it's huge. And consequently, Nashville is under a lot of development. Like If you look out at the Nashville skyline, it's all cranes and buildings and scaffolding. And there's so much construction happening that There are these heavy trucks, you know, construction trucks going up and down every road all the time. And that's so different from, you know, even Nashville 10 years ago. Consequently, we've got this very right now Nashville problem, which is that all these sound studios in Nashville are picking up the rumblings of these trucks, which might not be a problem if you're in one of the studios where you are recording a rock song with drums and yelling and it's very loud. But if you're in a little studio like I was, and it's set to record my voice, and it picks up every little vibration in the room, those trucks going by create a rumbling that even the best soundproofing cannot keep out because the trucks are so heavy. So we've had to do a lot of pickups where, you know, well, we got to do that chapter again because it's all rumbly. It's taken longer to do this one than than it took to record the last book.
0: You know, I think that really resonated with me because one of the things I've learned while doing this podcast is what you're saying, not heavy trucks driving by, but how many little noises get picked up by microphones, things you wouldn't dream about. Yes. Like if you're just having a regular conversation, you don't worry about it. But people tapping, people moving, people shifting in their chairs squeaky chairs, mm-hmm. you know, tapping on their- My computer. stomach. Yes, your stomach growling. That's right. Because you talked about eating it every day at 11 o'clock. That was the other one.
1: they <laughs> <laughs> like, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take lunch every day at 11 because that's when your stomach growls and we have to stop what we're doing anyway. So like I had never noticed that about myself, but sure enough, we have it on on a recording somewhere. But it is
0: so funny and I have to give these long lengthy instructions. And when I hear people moving a lot, I feel like a bit of a preschool
1: teacher. Could you please stay
0: still? You know, so it's just kind of funny <laughs> how much that stuff gets picked up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wear, wear quiet clothing. Do not wear jangly earrings.
0: Exactly. It's pretty funny. So tell me how you decided to choose Bomb Shelter as the title. I know it's the title of one of your stories, but how did you choose it mm-hmm. as the title? And then let's talk about Frank on the cover.
1: Oh, I love to talk about both of these things. I, I it may be and you are probably the same way having worked in a bookstore, but I think if you work around books as much as you and I both did, you gain a real appreciation for if not obsession with book covers, titles and design and all that stuff. So I care a lot about it. And probably, I mean, probably all authors care about it, but I like really, really care about it. The title is Bomb Shelter, which I think works on a metaphorical level, because a lot of what I'm writing about in this book is the struggle to be protective of the people I love in a dangerous world, when in fact, that's kind of impossible. But there's also a story, there is an essay in the book called Bomb Shelter, that is you know, the title essay and it has a real bomb shelter in it i won't give the whole thing away here but it's there's an actual bomb shelter in this book it's not just a metaphor and i knew when i wrote that chapter and i gave that chapter its title that that would be the title of the book i had been playing around with some other book titles but when i wrote the bomb shelter chapter i was like oh that's the title it's short it's punchy it's got the soft consonants and the hard consonants all those things that sound good in the ear it's you know it'll look good on the cover and i knew I knew kind of design-wise that I wanted the words big, bomb, shelter, and then the central, one central object. And I knew, that, I knew that I wanted the object to be a turtle for many reasons, including the metaphorical reasons of, you know, turtles carry a shell on their back. So they have this natural protective device that we human beings don't have. But also because there is a real turtle in the book who has a cameo in the book. The book is obviously not about turtles, but his name is Frank. That's what we call him. I don't, I don't know what his turtle mama named him. <laughs> we call him Frank. He probably doesn't know we call him that. Uh, but it's a real, it's a wild eastern box turtle. It's one of many who lives in our backyard in this part of town that we live in. It's kind of wild. We live really close to a state park that is just thousands of acres of, of wildness. And so we get a lot of wild animals where we live. And one of them is this turtle whom whom we have. Learned his shell pattern. We know it's him. Um, And he likes to come knock on our front door. He plays around on our back porch. We just kind of see him come and go. And I knew that I wanted to have him on the cover for all of these reasons. But the problem was at the time we were designing the cover, it was like a year ago. So this would have been spring. What year are we in? 2022? This would have been spring of 2021 that we were coming up with the cover. And I was speaking with my editor, who was speaking with the design folks at, at Atria and Simon and Schuster. And I said, I sent them all these photos from my phone. I was like, this is Frank. He's an amazing turtle. Please use one of these photos. And (laughs) just the head of design was like, we cannot use your iPhone photos on a book cover. Like that's, we're not going to use your phone photography on this cover. You know, if we were going to use your actual turtle, we would need a, like a professional, really good, super, high-res shot of this turtle. So can you can you get us that? And because it was early spring, I couldn't get that because Frank was still wherever he goes in the winter. And I think the word, it's not hibernate. I think it's brumate for what turtles do in the winter. They kind of half bury themselves under dirt and leaves and kind of go into sort of quasi-hibernation. And we don't know where he goes. I mean, he's not our pet. He's wild. And I said, I can't get his picture because he hasn't come out yet for spring. And they were like, okay it's fine we have found this other you know, i can't believe we, talk about people taking you seriously they were so kind and never like laughed in my face about any of this they were like it's fine we have a model turtle we can use we have some stock photography of this other turtle let us show you the cover with this other turtle on it so they showed me the cover it was beautiful i'm sure she was a lovely turtle i'm sure she's great but she's not frank and i was just kind of bummed about it and this this was a friday so they were like take the weekend get used to it. We just need you to sign off by Monday. And I was like, okay, fine. And so that weekend I was, you know, looking at this cover with the turtle that wasn't Frank and I was just sick about it. I was like, I cannot believe I don't have a good enough photo to use for the cover. And I went out in my backyard and I was working in the garden, you know, planting herbs or whatever I was doing. And I was talking to Frank as if he could hear me. I was bit, ba- you know, when you're by yourself and you talk out loud as if your surroundings can hear you. So I was like, oh, Frank, I wish you were here. You're not going to get to be on the cover. I just wish I knew where you were. And I swear to God, the turtle comes walking out from under the shrubbery of my backyard. <laughs>
0: You've called me and I came.
1: I mean, it truly, he was like, what? I'm right here. I dropped my shovel, ran in the house, like tracked dirt all the way up my stairs, running upstairs to find my camera, my good camera. Like, oh, where's the battery? Ran back downstairs. My children, this, you know, it was the weekend. So my kids were home. They saw me doing it. They were like, what are you doing, mom? I was like, Frank is here. I've got to get his picture. I ran outside. I lay down on the porch in my gardening overalls. I still had one gardening glove on (laughs) and my camera. and And I probably took 400 pictures of Frank. And if you go to my website, there is a picture. My daughter came out with her phone and started taking pictures of me taking pictures of Frank. So you can actually see this moment on my website. And I sent, I did not send all 400 photos to Simon & Schuster, but I sent a handful and I said, would any of these work? And they did. And now the cover has real Frank on it. And I'm just so happy.
0: I love that. And I love it particularly because I followed your Instagram account for a while and Frank makes regular appearances.
1: Yeah, he's part of the, you know, it's weird. It's like he's part of the family, but he's not part of the family. He's not, you know, he's wild. He is a wild animal who shares this little space on Earth with us.
0: Well, I'm glad that he showed up when he did. I am
1: too. Makes me so happy. I think I haven't seen the the actual book jacket yet, the, the back and the sides and the flaps and everything. But I'm pretty sure on the, one of the inside flaps, it says cover model, Frank.
0: Oh, I love that. He should get credit. He showed up when he was supposed to. He did did hard work. Well, you mentioned working in a bookstore. You worked at Parnassus a while ago. How did that influence your writing, do you think?
1: I mean, I think the most obvious way, you know, other people's books were always going to influence me because like you, I, I was a big reader and you absorb what you read. But I think in terms of the difference in working in a bookstore, the best part was just being around other people who made Books. I mean, Nashville, much like Houston, is the stop on a lot of book tours. So great writers would come through town. I mean, literally almost every night back, you know, in the pre-COVID days, every night there was a different amazing author coming through town to do an author talk at the bookstore. And when you are around people who do the thing that you are trying to do, it normalizes it and it makes it seem really attainable. And it's not like books. Those are made by, you know, some magical people far away who have you know, they must have some special talent that I don't have and and they must just be different from everyone else. When you're around people every day who write books and you are also trying to write a book, it just makes it seem a little more attainable, a little more real.
0: I love that. I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective. Author visits were always my very favorite thing when I worked at the bookstore and I always liked working them. And hearing what authors had to say, which I guess then ties in with this podcast, because I still love to hear what authors have to say. Yeah, but I just thought it was so much fun to hear other people's questions, to hear the whole process of how the book came about, and just all of it. So that's interesting. That makes sense. I would also think just being surrounded by so many different books, so many different themes, that it would just kind of make you think you could write about anything you wanted.
1: Yeah, I mean, it definitely. And, and working in a bookstore is is a great experience in learning there's something for everyone. Books that I would never have picked up, there were people coming and going, I got to get that new book. And it makes you realize you know, there's so many different kinds of taste and there are so many different kinds of readers and different kinds of books. There really is room for just about anything. So that helps kind of put to rest the idea of, oh, there are so many books already. No one needs one by me. If you can write something that you feel really is compelling and that tells some kind of universal story, there is going to be a reader out there. There will be many readers out there for it.
0: I think that's exactly right. And your reference on the covers is interesting because I'm always obsessed about covers and love to talk about them and hear how they came about. And I wonder if some of that isn't reflective of my time at the bookstore, knowing certain things really stand out, certain things don't. You're going to walk by them all the time and see them. So you really, certain things catch your eye and certain things don't.
1: Yes. And it's so funny. I mean, I'm I'm sure you did this as well. Just taking note of the trends in covers, how you could see like one or two of something. And then six months later, you see 10 of that same thing. You know, like this book did really well with a bright blue cover. All right. Six months later, we've got 12 bright blue books.
0: And that's kind of a pet peeve of mine. I understand (laughs) it from the sales perspective, but it kind of drives me crazy because I'm like, okay, come on, let's all be a little bit more creative in what we're doing, but I understand if something t- does really well, then it makes sense to kind of go in that direction,
1: right? And I think sometimes it ha- it's it's not it's not intentional that that it becomes a whole wave. If you've got one really great designer at one publishing house who's like, oh, you know, what? I, I'm going to take inspiration from this that bright blue book I loved. I'm going to use a similar blue, I think on this. And then you have a designer at a different house and a designer at a different imprint and multiple designers all having the same thought. It's just like in fashion or anything else, something gets into the ether and people are picking up on it without even realizing that they're all doing the same thing until it all hits the shelves. And you go, Oh, look, we all use that same font for titles. That's a
0: very good point. And I hadn't thought about that either. Your newsletter is one of my absolute favorites. I still recommend it all the time to people and I signed up for it several years ago. So, is it just so much fun to come up with it? I just think it's it's so creative. I love your book recommendations, but I also love your song recommendations, and it's just a fun one to read.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I you know, I started that kind of on a whim. I and I can't believe I've been doing it now for 4 years, 5 years, something like that. I started it back when I worked at the bookstore and I worked for the the show for Nashville Public Television. And I was reading at such a voracious rate for those two jobs. And I actually, even with the store and the blog that I ran for the store and the show, I still didn't have enough outlets for all the book recommendations I wanted to make. So I was like, I just need one other place where I can put book recommendations. Okay, I'll make my own newsletter. And then I wanted to throw in some other things just because, you know, I like other things as do many people. So I decided it would be a book, a link, a song and a picture every every time. And the newsletter doesn't it doesn't even have a name. It just says at the top a book, a link, a song and a picture, those things in that order. And you know, being in Nashville, obviously the song is easy to come up with because there's so much great new music around, and I feel like there's always some funny little link I want to I want to send out. And I used to send it weekly, and then I kind of ran out of steam, and then I went on book tour in 2019 and I wasn't able to send it for I think months at a time, and now it's maybe once a month maybe twice a month if I'm, if I, you know, really am on it, but I love it. And I love, people actually email me back, like they read it and then they write back to it, which is absolutely delightful. So it's, it's fun. It's just a fun little thing. That's kind of, no one's making me do it. It's just for me. Well,
0: and I think the structure is one of the things that I do like about it. There's nothing excess in it. I don't have to wade through tons and tons of, I don't know, wade through tons and tons of writing, whatever it is. I mean, it is just what you said, book picks, a link. A song, and then you know the picture, and it's just so it's easy to get through it, but I always learn something. I just love it.
1: oh good, I'm so glad that makes me happy.
0: Good well, before we wrap up, can you tell me what you read recently that you really liked?
1: Yes, oh my gosh, so my my reading life gets kind of weird right before I have a book out, and that is because when I read and I, you're probably the same way because you're such a voracious reader, but when I read, I tend to make either literal notes in the books I'm reading or kind of mental notes of like, oh, that idea makes me think of a different idea, which reminds me I might want to write about this whole other idea. And it's a connection that like no one could see but me. But to me, everything I read is sort of feeding this bubbling cauldron of stuff I might want to write about. When I have a book about to come out and there's nothing else I can add to it and I have no control over it because it's literally at the printer, it actually makes me nervous to read because I'm afraid I'll get an idea that makes me go, oh my gosh, I've got to add that to the new book, but I can't. So my reading life gets kind of weird. I haven't been reading a whole lot of nonfiction lately, but I have been reading novels. And I feel so lucky that this happens. I kind of can't believe it happens, but people send me their novels to blurb and it's so much fun. And there are two coming out early this summer both of which i blurbed and they are both such feel good books in different ways one is called the mutual friend it's by carter bayes it's his first novel but not his first time telling a story because he is one of the creators of the television show how i met your mother and i started out liking this book and you know i just liked it i thought it was fun i thought it was funny kind of it's kind of a little similar to how i met your mother in that it is an ensemble story about a bunch of singles in new york But then it kept taking these really unexpected, deep turns, and I ended up absolutely loving it. I don't want to say too much about it because I don't want to spoil it, but it has a very unusual narrator. And I I can't even remember what I wrote in my blur, but I think I said something about how this book made me sit and stare out the window and think about what it means to be human. It just works on so many levels, and I loved it. Another one that's coming out also early summer is called, it has a different title in the UK, but I think in the US, it's called Iona Iverson's Rules for Commuting. And it's by Claire Pooley, who is a British writer. She wrote, her first novel was called The Authenticity Project. Oh, right. Came out a couple of years ago.
0: Okay. I didn't read it, but I remember it was everywhere.
1: Yes, it was everywhere. This book, I think, is not that The Authenticity Project wasn't great. I think this book is better. And it's just a perfect, like, poolside summer read. It's short, it's light, it's spare. It almost reads like a movie script. It has a very love actually kind of feel to it. And I think it would be a great like poolside, beach, margarita read. I just thought it was absolutely delightful. Just a very feel good kind of thing. So those would be my two recommendations, I think, for right now.
0: Those both sound wonderful. So another author also recommended The Mutual Friend, and I think maybe blurbed it as well. So you're the second person in like a week to mention that one to me. So That's so funny. Definitely I'm adding it to my list. And the second one sounds equally good.
1: It's just delightful. It's when I was reading the Iona Iverson's Rules for Commuting, I remember thinking like she's it's not heavy on description. It's it really does read almost like a script. It's like dialogue, dialogue, it moves along quickly, but just really fun. Well, wonderful.
0: Well, as I said, I always love your recommendations. That's one of the reasons I like your newsletter so much. But Mary-Laura, it was so much fun to speak with you. This was just wonderful. I always love chatting. And thank you so much for coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast.
1: Oh, thank you for having me, Cindy. This was great. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes. And luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts. And I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style. And together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling and all in approximately seven minutes.
0: Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at ThoughtsFromAPAGE. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time.